Let's pray. Father, you have spoken through your word. So it's to your word we come. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit will strengthen me to preach by his power. And that your people would, through that same power, be conformed to Christ's likeness. We pray, Father, that you and Jesus the Son may receive all the glory and honor. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Beloved, we come to the Word of God. Open your Bibles to Luke 19. If you're not already there, Luke 19. We were here a couple of weeks ago. Jesus went into the home of Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, Jericho's most notorious sinner, and he made him clean. And it was very controversial to the, the religious folks outside who thought, how dare he go into the home of this unclean man. But Jesus made it clear that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. So he identifies himself as the Son of Man, the Messiah, the one who comes from God to receive all dominion, power, and glory in a kingdom. And that is important as we get into what we're about to look at today. He also tells us his message, his mission is to save sinners. And the clarity with which Jesus spoke is important as we continue because Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. In fact, starting in verse 28, we are going to be getting into his triumphal entry into the city the week that he will be crucified and eventually raised from the dead. And we're going to be coming right up to that point today. We're going to be coming up to verse 27. So this is the last thing Luke writes before Jesus' final week. That gives us a sense of urgency. We need to hear what Jesus has to say before He's going to the cross. That's the, the urgency that is conveyed as these people are all around Him and He is heading toward the, the culmination, the... the the, the, the climax of His earthly ministry. So, let's look beginning in verse 11. We're going to read to verse 27 and we will get into it. This is what the Word of God says. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because He was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So He said, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are going to be in authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, And you are to be over five cities. Another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man 
and take up what you did not lay down, and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, By your own words I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down, and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him, and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. May God bless the reading of His Word. This is not the easiest parable to dissect. In fact, it ends on a pretty sad, solemn note. But when Jesus told this parable, He knew exactly what He was doing. Jesus was telling a story here that people could immediately identify with because, in a sense, they had seen this play out in Israel in the preceding decades. Let me back up a little bit to the time when Jesus was born. Israel at that time was ruled by a man named King Herod. Now, Israel was occupied territory under the Roman Empire, and Herod was made a king. See, Caesar ruled from Rome, but in order to govern the vast territory that made up the Roman Empire, you would have subordinate rulers all over the place, and King Herod was one of these. And he was a very powerful subordinate ruler. Um, He was the ruler when Jesus was born. It was to the Magi who came from the east, they came to King Herod. And it was to Herod who ordered the execution of all of the infants, all the males, two and under, in Bethlehem. Because this king of the Jews had been born. Now, probably the same year he gives that order, Herod dies in 4 B.C., not long after that. And his territory was divided amongst his three sons, one of whom was named Archelaus. And the people of Israel hated Archelaus. He tried to intimidate the citizens of Judea by killing 3,000 Jews to show his power. You might remember his name from Matthew chapter 2. In Matthew chapter 2, Joseph goes to Egypt to escape the wrath of King Herod. When he finds out that King Herod has died, he is told in a dream to go back. But then he's scared because he finds out that Archelaus is now ruling. And so instead of going to Bethlehem in Judea, under the guidance of the, the, the angel in the dream, he goes to Galilee, to Nazareth. And that's how Jesus ends up in Galilee for most of his adult life, for most of his life period. And how this applies, how he applies this parable is when, when coming to power, Archelaus went to Rome to have his rule confirmed. But the Jews, because he was such a bad man, he was such a bad, I mean, he killed people, they sent their own delegation to Rome to try to persuade Rome, don't let this man reign over us. Well, it didn't work. He did get the kingdom, but he was not allowed to be called king. The Roman Empire said, you can't be called king until the people you are ruling, you find favor with them. Well, that never happened. 
And in fact, he found himself out of favor with Rome so that they removed him from power and then set up a bunch of governors instead, one of whom was Pontius Pilate. So now we fast forward three decades. And the people have lived through this. They remember this. This is in their memories. And so undoubtedly, the recent history of Israel would have come to their mind when they heard Jesus tell this parable. So in verse 11 we read, While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because He was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Now before we get into the parable, we need to talk about that for a moment because we have to remember that Jesus had been in Jericho, a very prosperous city. If you go back in your Bible, if you go to the book of Maps at the end of your Bible, you're going to find that Jericho is not too far from Jerusalem. It's a little bit east-northeast of Jerusalem. So Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, the city of David, the capital, the, the holy city in the eyes of the Jews. And they've just heard Jesus call Himself the Son of Man and that He's come to save. And so there are all kinds of things going through their minds, not the least of which is Messianic expectation. Israel was filled with Messianic expectation. They were waiting to see Jesus reveal Himself as the Messiah and for the kingdom to be established in Jerusalem. I mean, why else would Jesus be going there? The word appear in Luke, in this situation, is is intentional. It is a, a nautical term in the Greek, and it conveys something that becomes visible on the horizon. If you've ever been in a boat, you know what I'm talking about. So the people think, hey, he's approaching Jerusalem, and we're here with him, and here's Jesus. It's about to happen. The kingdom is about to be restored. And so there is this frenzy of expectation going on. But the problem with that is twofold. First, many in Israel, not unlike today, were very misguided in their expectations of the Messiah and the kingdom of God. To use a a phrase that will kind of turn a phrase that Paul uses in Colossians 3, you could say that they had their minds set on the things of the earth and not on the things above when it's supposed to be the other way around. They were thinking of the kingdom in political terms. They were thinking of the Messiah coming to destroy the Roman Empire and free Israel and bring back the golden age of David. And that's the first problem. The second is that this was never going to happen the way they thought it was going to happen. Jesus was always going to be the lamb led to the slaughter to, to be the substitute like in Genesis 22 with Abraham and Isaac at the, the pyre on Mount Moriah. It was always going to happen this way. Jesus was always going to be pierced for the transgressions of His people and crushed for their iniquities. The Messiah was always going to be the suffering servant first before He was seen to be the victorious King of kings and Lord of lords. So Jesus told this parable to correct them and to reset their focus on what it needed to be on. And the first thing, the first person we're introduced to is a nobleman. And he goes to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And let's think about who this nobleman might represent. I think it's pretty clear when we dig through this a little bit. What is Jesus about to do? 
He's about to be crucified, buried, raised from the dead. Three days later, raised from the dead. Then 40 days after that, He's going to what? He's going to ascend into heaven. So He is going to depart for what you might call a distant country. Jesus was about to go to the right hand of the Father, to be precise. But He would, and He still will, by the way, return. And when Jesus does, what does the book of Revelation say? What does Jude allude to? What do so many uh, passages refer to in Scripture? That the kingdom is coming with Him. In fact, Revelation 20 is very specific that He will reign for 1,000 years on the earth before the new heaven and the new earth come. So, beloved, the nobleman here represents the Lord. And the journey to a distant land, His ascension into heaven and His exaltation by the Father and one day His return. Well, in verse 13 we then see this. And He, the nobleman, called ten of his slaves. And we're going to see that, that these slaves represent different groups, different perspectives, different eternal destinies, eternities. But for the purposes of this parable, these th- slaves are at this point thought to be faithful to their master. They're thought to be faithful to the nobleman. And as he departs, he entrusts with them the responsibility to take care with what, with what he leaves them, which uh, ten minus, about three months' wages, and, and one of them per, per slave. They are to be good stewards of this. Jesus says, do business with this until I come back. So, first things first, the nobleman says, I am coming back. He isn't leaving these slaves forever. So, so they are left with the expectation that they will see Him again. But they aren't sure when. In the meantime... While they're waiting for Him to return, they are to do business with what He has entrusted them with. That that phrase, do business, is translated from a Greek word from which we get our word pragmatic. So in other words, they are to be productive. They are to to be profitable. They are to do with the mina that which works. Which is basically what pragmatic means. That's how they would show faithfulness to the Master. That's how they would show love and respect and appreciation for the nobleman. And as I've read it put, that's how they would show their commitment to the well-being of his household. And it doesn't take us long to figure out, isn't that what we are called to do? Isn't that how we are called to be? Isn't that what those who have been saved by the grace of God through faith alone and Christ alone to the glory of God alone, I mean, that is what we have been called to. To do business with what we've been entrusted with. No matter how much or how little it is, we are to, to do the business of the King. More on that in a minute. First, let's take a step back and, and see the different responses to the nobleman in this parable. The first response we get is that of these citizens. See, the nobleman departs for the distant country to get his kingdom. He leaves ten minas with his ten slaves. And meanwhile, verse 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now, this is one place where History and the parable are both the same and different. Archelaus 
had Jews slaughtered. But there is nothing in this parable to indicate the nobleman gave any reason for anyone to hate him. In fact, uh, that's another way we see this nobleman represents Jesus. Let's, Let's go back to the upper room for a moment. Actually, we're moving forward into the future, but it's John 15. And Jesus is in the upper room, and He's talking to the twelve minus Judas. And it's just hours before He's going to be arrested, hours before He's going to be hung upon a cross. Okay? And what happens? What does He say? He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, and them as the religious leaders, the Jews... If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin, but now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. Now listen to this. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. He's quoting Psalm 69.4 there. They hated the nobleman without a cause. They hated Archelaus with a cause. They hated this nobleman in the parable without a cause. And it's looking forward to how the Jews would cry out, crucify Him, crucify Him, hating Jesus without a cause. He gave them no cause to hate them. But plenty did. Why? Because of the sin in their own hearts. Because they are the ones who cried out to Pontius Pilate not too long in the future, we do not want this man to reign over us. Crucify him. And it's the same hate that resonates in the hearts of every single person who rejects Jesus Christ today, whether they realize it or not. The heart is deceitful and is desperately wicked, says the prophet Jeremiah. And that is every heart that does not have the Spirit of God in it. But Archelaus, he'd earned his hate. The nobleman had not. But I want you to also note that they are still, and the terminology here is specific, they are still His citizens. And that's the way it is with Jesus. He is Lord over all. He is even Lord over those who hate Him. Jesus is Lord even over everyone who rejects Him. Even if they blaspheme Him. Because we read that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So rather you entrust yourself to Christ or spit in His face, it's not going to ever change the fact that Jesus is God, Lord, and king. And you have to deal with that. We all have to deal with that. He is the one through whom all things were created. Everything and everyone belongs to Him. But for now, in this parable, the nobleman's citizens hate Him. But there's a second response to it. Not everyone hates Him. A second group of people, look at verse 15. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. Notice that do business, and now he's looking at what business they had done. It's the same terminology. So the nobleman was faithful to return, 
And now he was going to see if his slaves had been faithful with the minas that they were each given. So the first appears and says, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. So this is a faithful slave. This is someone who did what the Master said. He is a faithful slave and a humble one too. Because not only did he produce tenfold what he was entrusted with, but he doesn't boast about what he has done to multiply the mina. In fact, he seems to give credit to the nobleman. Your mina has made ten minas more. So the nobleman, who's now the king, says, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be in authority over ten cities. Ten cities. The king is rewarding the slave, not with with money necessarily, but with something so far above and beyond that which the slave had done for him. But what had the slave done? He'd been faithful. He'd been productive. He'd done the business of the master, and that's how, beloved, it is to be done for everyone who trusts in Jesus. Jesus, and that's what's going to be done for all who have been faithful with what He entrusts us with. Beloved, there's going to come a day, and I don't know when this day will be, but there's going to come a day when each and every one of us stands before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat is, is what it's referred to. And it's going to be sinners who are saved by His grace, cleansed by His blood, and 1 Corinthians 3 teaches us each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it will be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive an, a reward. A heavenly eternal reward. A divine reward. That slave took one mina and was faithful to his master's business and it increased tenfold. That's something that we ought to think about wanting to emulate. Another slave comes. He says, Your mina master has made five minas. And he, the master, said to him, And you are to be over five cities. So he was faithful too. His results didn't quite match up with the first slave, but he was faithful nonetheless. In fact, it should be said that just because he only made five minas doesn't make him any less faithful than the first. And that's something we need to know. That's something we need to remember. Faithfulness, beloved, does not guarantee equality of outcome. Let me repeat that. Your faithfulness to Christ does not guarantee equality of outcome. Now, we're all going to be saved. We're all going to be in His kingdom. But the Bible nowhere guarantees equality of outcomes. Let me explain what I mean. Some missionaries, when they go out into the field, they see masses converted to Christ. And then there are others who are like William Carey. William Carey was a a Baptist missionary. He went to India. He's really the first one of his kind in 1793. He goes to India... And he doesn't see a convert for seven years. And yet he is considered today the father of the modern missions movement. Was he any less faithful? No. 
And it doesn't mean Carrie was less faithful. Just because the second slave made less doesn't mean he was any less faithful. Beloved, you may be faithful to Jesus and proclaim Him to everyone you know. You may have family that doesn't know Jesus and you may lose your voice talking about how they need to come to Christ, telling people about Jesus, your, your friends. You may not see any tangible fruit and you may grow so discouraged You may feel like there is no progress. In fact, you may be faithful and love God and love your neighbor and at the end of several years wonder if things are worse, not better, and if it's all worth it. Take heart. Because when the King returns, He will reward those who have done business for Him. Just as He is now able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or imagine as we read in Ephesians 3.20 when the King of Kings returns with His kingdom He is going to lavish liberally blessing upon blessing reward upon reward upon all of those who are His. We read in 1 Corinthians 2.9 things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. What more motivation do we need to be faithful? What more incentive could we be given to be faithful? And yet we are too often rather served by temporary earthly pleasures, by things which will burn like stubble in the fire. And by the way, the things that burn like stubble in the fire, they're not necessarily bad things. They're not necessarily evil things. They're not necessarily uh, wrong in and of themselves. But when we get caught up in things that don't have eternal consequence, when we begin to be consumed by things that simply benefit us now but don't benefit us eternally or the kingdom eternally, rather that's the latest social media frenzy or or the, the latest outrage on cable news, when we focus on the things that will pass away and not on the mission we've been given, we are like someone else in this story. The third slave in verse 20. Look again at verses 20 and 21. Another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. There's a distinction, and I'm going to bring up the Greek again. Third time today. There's a distinction in the Greek this was written in that doesn't come out in English that really... And it's important to show that this third slave was completely different than the other two. The Greek word... There's a Greek word, alas, that is translated another. And it it refers to another of the same kind. Like, I'm a man and Stephen's a man. Alas, he's another of the same kind. 
That's not the word Luke uses here. That's not the word Jesus says here. He uses the word heteros, which you might, just by me saying that, understand to be another of a different kind. My wife is different from me, praise the Lord. Okay? The point being, the third slave was not like the other two. While the first two took their mina and worked to make much more of it, the third pocketed it, put it in his handkerchief, stored it away. He wasted his chance to use the the nobleman, now the king's money, to make a profit. It was a a self-serving thing to do. It was a lazy thing to do. It was careless. He was only thinking about himself. And then when asked about it, what does he do? He turns it back around on the king. I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. So he accuses his master of being harsh and hurtful and unfair. Beloved, today, there are many who will say, I believe in God. They might even say, I believe in Jesus. But I'm not going to follow every word this says because it seems so judgmental. It seems so harsh. We should just accept everybody, you know, the way they are. And so, you know, we, we hide the gospel in our pocket stored away, and it's serving us, but it's not doing anything else. He's shifting blame here, the third slave. And if you recall, that's exactly what Adam and Eve did when they sinned in the garden, right? The the woman you gave me, she did it. The serpent, he did it. It did it. But he doesn't stop there, you know. It's not just that he shifts blame to his master. His deep-seated disdain for the king comes out when he says, you take up what you did not lay down and you reap what you did not sow. So he's basically calling his master a thief. Taking crops he didn't plant. Taking advantage of him. Beloved, these are not the actions or the words of a man who loved his master. There's no respect there. He's just there to benefit from being near the nobleman, the king. He's not there to benefit the king or the kingdom. And he is rebuked for it. Look again at verse 22. He said to him, the king said to him, By your own words I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? He's being sarcastic here, I then why did you not put my money in the bank and having come, I would have collected it with interest? Then he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. So, This nobleman, this king who who represents Jesus, rebukes this false believer. And and, and we know it's a false believer because no true slave of Jesus is worthless. Jesus didn't shed His blood worthlessly on the cross. He would never call one of His own worthless. And furthermore, the king asked, why the worthless slave didn't at least... Why didn't you at least put the money in the bank and draw a little interest? You could have at least done that. But no. He could have 
at least done something to provide minimal gain for the king and the kingdom. But the wicked slave, the worthless slave, had no interest in that. He just pocketed it and did his own thing. Beloved, I have a great concern that a great percentage of those who profess the name of Jesus Christ, who say they are Christians, who say they belong to the church, who say they belong to Jesus, live the same way. We need to be mindful, brothers and sisters, lest we be judged like this slave. The mina was taken away. It was given to the one who already has ten. Because to everyone who has, more will be given. It makes sense for God, who is wise, to entrust more to those who are faithful. Now that takes different shapes and sizes. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying God's going to make you rich if you are good stewards with the ten bucks you have. He's worried about... Well, God's not worried, first of all, but there's a lot more to life than money. But to everyone who has, more shall be given. In other words, when you are faithful in the place God has planted you, in in what God has planted you with, however much or however little that is, there is not only reward in that, but there is the potential for more eternal reward with more being entrusted to you. The worthless slave, on the other hand, was stripped of everything. In reality, he's not unlike the the ungrateful, angry citizens that we saw earlier in the the, the parable. And they're going to share the same judgment. Look at verse 27. But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. It has, well, let's just, let me state it plainly. Jesus came the first time to save sinners. When the king returns, he's coming to reign and to judge. The fact of the matter is, he is an exacting man toward those who reject him. Jesus is exacting toward those who are not faithful. Jesus will be exacting toward those who are playing the role of a follower only to to live not for the glory of the king and the kingdom, but to do their own thing instead. And if you're in Christ, beloved, if you've been saved by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone... That's not you. But it should cause us to examine ourselves. It should always cause us to say, what am I doing for the kingdom? We belong to the king. Everything we are, everything we have, everything we ever will be, all of our time, all of our money, all of our stuff, all of our everything belongs to Jesus. Everything we have, we've been stewarded with from the king. We are His slaves, which is the best thing to possibly be. What, what are we doing with what He has entrusted us with? What are you doing today with what He has entrusted you with? 
What are you doing with the time you've been given? With the money you've been given? You say, well, I work for my money. God gave you your job. God puts you where you are. It all belongs to Him. What are you doing with your relationships? What kind of a steward are you with, with your relationships, your friendships? Are you being a godly influence on others? Are you using the, the opportunities you are given to benefit the kingdom of God? What kind of citizens of the kingdom are we? There's a great theologian scholar by the name of Toby Mack who puts it this way. We've only got one shot, got to take it now. Going on in, going all in, got to make it count. Won't look back, going to set my eyes because there ain't no practice runs in life. This is not a test. This is the real thing. If you think that you can get by, and I'm gonna, I'll say this especially to, to, to the younger of us. If you think that it's okay to engage in, 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 in daily, weekly, monthly, yearly behavior that is common among people your age that has nothing to do with the kingdom, you need to repent. Because you don't have time you don't have time to get it right later. There ain't no practice runs in life. You don't know how much time you have left. And neither do I. Know that if you have, re- have not repented of your sins though, if you've not repented of your sins and entrusted yourself to the King, it's impossible to do this. Beloved, if you have not given your life to Christ, I pray God will make you alive, that you'll place your faith in Him. You know, God became a man not so that we can have a ticket to heaven. But He lived a perfectly sinless life to be the sacrifice for our sins. That's a heavy thing. He bore the full fury of the wrath of His Father for all sin, for all time, for all who will ever believe. And then He was raised on the third day so that all who believe in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. If you've not come to Jesus in this way, all the rest I've said this morning makes little to no sense in in the big picture. You must be His. You must be His slave to benefit in His kingdom. This is not a test. This is the real thing. And if you have come to Him, if you've come to Christ, this is not a call to work for His favor. This is a time, this is a call to rest in His favor. You know, we don't work for our salvation. We rest in our salvation. And the work we do, we do because of our salvation. Jesus has given you some time. Jesus has given you some resources. However little or however much it is, use all you have, all you are, and all you ever will be 
for him. Those who don't will be slain in his presence. But those who prove themselves faithful slaves will do so because God has worked in them, first of all. But will receive eternal reward. And I praise God for that. And I pray that you will too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you. You are a good God. You will exact judgment upon those who reject you. You will exact judgment upon those who play the part but are not real in their faith. Father, I pray that you would call all of us to a genuine faith, to a to to, to true discipleship. Help us, Father, because because we cannot do it apart from you. To be faithful slaves. And that one day you will look upon us and say, well done. And you will grant to us an, an inheritance that, that Peter writes is imperishable and will never fade away. And Lord, if there be anyone here who when they look inside themselves, when they, when they search themselves, this is not what I am, is, is what they find. Lord, I pray you would work in them today. Create in them a clean heart that they might serve You gladly, faithfully, for Your glory. That's my prayer for all of us, Father. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.